We've been in a series uh, called The Image of God, and we've been looking at a variety of subjects, mainly looking at race, gender, sexuality, life, uh, the subject of life. We'll be looking at uh, like refugees, immigrants, uh, life in the womb, so on and so forth. So we'll be looking at that next week uh, as I'm talking real quick. If you guys don't have a Bible and you want to get a Bible, uh, ushers would love to get you guys a Bible. Um, one final thing before we jump in, I wanted to just kind of extend an invitation. Um, we have a handful of people that are part of what we call a worship discipleship here at Calvary Slow. These are people that lead worship in a variety of ways, and there's probably about a, a dozen or so that are involved with this. And they meet at my house every three weeks, and we go through training and whatnot. It's really a good time. Uh, but today we have something unique that I'm going to actually extend it and open it to anybody that is interested in any way, shape, or form in worship and writing music or singing music and whatnot. Uh, I have a good friend of mine that's actually going to be coming today who uh, is a talented artist who has written dozens and dozens of songs, who has recorded a lot of different albums, um, fairly recognized, known guy. I won't say who it is because it's a surprise. Um, but if you would like to come, you're more than welcome to come this one time to be part of that. If you want more information, just come to me, talk to me. I'm happy to give you directions. It's at my house. I'll tell you where it's at. So uh, just come to me afterwards, and uh, I'll give you information. love to have you there. It'll be at 2 o'clock till 4. So that's that. Back into the subject matter we'll be looking at. So we've been in a series going through uh, the book of Acts on Sunday morning. So we took a break from that to focus on a handful of these topics. And one of the things that we said is that these topics are actually, first and foremost, even though they might be playing out within a larger political arena, they first and foremost are Bible topics, that the Bible actually has a lot to say about. And what we've been really trying to understand is that within the context of culture at large, uh, these may be points of trouble and confusion and consternation for a lot of people. And yet what we want to do is to allow Scripture to inform our understanding what these things have to say, so that we, as followers of Jesus, would be able to do the best that we can to align our hearts and our lives with the, uh, the purposes of God in these things. That's really the big idea that we're trying to follow through this. So last week, we looked at the subject of sexuality. We're going to kind of continue exploring the idea of sexuality today. Today's going to be a little bit more practical than last week. Last week, um, I'll kind of recap some of the stuff that we looked at last week. Um, but what I want to do today is I want to just give some practical tools and ideas to think about to help us uh, fight and resist and to take every thought captive the way that the New Testament describes so that as we follow Jesus that we could play these things out in, within our world without being defiled and broken or giving into some levels of dysfunctionality that are oftentimes just prone to our, our lives. So before we jump in, I'm going to pray and then we'll get to work looking at this. I'll give you a quick little recap as to what we looked at last week. So if you weren't here, I'll go through a very, very fast truncated version of what we looked at, and then we'll jump into the content that we'll be focusing on here today. So let me pray. We'll jump in. God, thank you that you are here. Thank you that your word is life. And God, we ask you right now that you would just speak to us, open our hearts, open our minds. God, give us uh, a a will that wants to embrace what you have to say. So we uh, submit, God, our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what we said last week is that the Bible actually has what we would describe as a sex ethic. Now, one of the things that shouldn't shock us um, that the Bible has a sex ethic because in reality, culture at large has a sex ethic, right? Maybe you didn't know that. It has a sex ethic. In fact, most scholars and sociologists and historians would basically trace 
modern-day sex ethic back to around the 60s and late 50s and whatnot, which was there was the sexual revolution, sexual liberation that basically took place within our culture, and for the most part, it created a sex ethic in our society at large that basically said the best sex is the sex that you can do with anyone you want, any way you want. You're free, you're liberated to do it any way you want without any form of, of, of external um, uh, societal or religious um, oppressors pushing down upon you. You're free to do what you want, so hence the name sexual liberation. So for the most part, that has been the sex ethic of America. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking why that's had its dysfunctionalities, why it's been broken, but at the end of the day, I think most sociologists uh, have studied, and it's not even from Christian perspectives, purely secularized perspectives, they would say, for the most part, within nuanced ways, that it is actually a, a bill of goods. It's not kept forth its promises. It promised liberation. It promised life to live a repressed, free life whereby you can express yourself sexually however you want, any way you want, with whoever you want, however often you want, and you will have freedom. You will be alive in that context. But we know that that's a bill of goods. It's not true. It's actually not true at all. But that's not for today. What I want to focus on mainly is just the fact that the Bible actually has a sex ethic. So this is, again, this is by way of review. So what is the sex ethic of the Bible? Uh, next slide. We'll just take a look at quickly, quickly what that is. Uh, basically, two ways in which the Bible kind of breaks us down. On the one hand, it tells us to pursue purity. Pursue purity. So purity within that particular context of the Bible, it would basically see it as heterosexual, monogamous, faithful marriage. Within the context, man and woman come together. They unite. They commit themselves together forever. There's no sexual infidelity. In other words, man's not cheating on his wife. That would be called um, adultery, another big, larger concept in which that would call it fall, fall under, which is this next thing, which is called porneia. But that's the way the Bible describes it. The flip side of that is also a way of thinking about uh, faithful singleness. So on the one hand, uh, the concept of pursuing purity, according to the Bible, is two people, husband and wife, male and female, coming together in love, submitting themselves to one another in all the ways in which the Bible describes it, and or singleness. Um, faithful singleness. The flip side of this is we're actually also, uh, next half of the Christian uh, sex ethic is to flee porneia. So whatever porneia is, is what we looked at last week, is we're actually uh, called by God to flee this. So what we looked at last week was the idea of porneia. It's this word that kind of carries all sorts of connotations. It's like a junk drawer term. Uh, which includes adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, incest, bestiality, and so on and so forth. Just, it's a big junk drawer term. It's not saying that all of these things are the same, because they're not. Um, that's really important to nuance them, because they are not all the same. I'm just simply describing that from a Bible perspective, that when the word porneia is used, it could, it, it could include all of these uh, dysfunctionalities or ways of viewing sexuality um, that is distinct from what the Bible describes as sexual purity. I'm just, I'm just helping you, wanting to help you think through how the Bible actually categorizes this idea of its sex ethic. All right, next slide. As we kind of go on, um, the next thing to think about is the question that we looked at last week. This is kind of more of a statement that God's uh, intended purpose for sex is threefold. One, partnership. Two, pleasure. There's a pleasure side element of that. And then three, practical, uh, procreative. 
uh, to be able to have kids. So all three of these things kind of coming together, not isolating one over the next, but all three of these things basically coming together. So again, if, if it's a married couple having pleasurable sex uh, within the context of you know, partnership, marriage, and one of them is incapable of having a child, that doesn't make them less human. Doesn't, doesn't make them less human. Doesn't make sex any less enjoyable. It just means for whatever reason. And this is why we would say all three of these things need to kind of come together in that level of cooperation, not one over the other and so on. So again, in modern context, we typically say sex is, all, is just simply for pleasure and procreation. Again, according to the modern sex ethic, we'd basically say something like this. Sex is mainly for pleasure. We definitely don't want kids. That's why we abort them, or that's why we either figure out different ways by way of taking the pill or whatever to somehow keep from having kids because we don't want the procreative element of sex. And partnership is kind of a take it or leave it type thing. You know, if it's a good partner, yes. If it's a partner that nags me and bugs me and gets on my nerves, probably not, uh, at least not for very long. And uh, so, again, all of these things, it's, I'm just simply saying that sex in the modern-day sex ethic plays into that as well, but in different ways, different things are emphasized. Uh, in an ancient traditionalist perspective, the sex uh, purpose can have heavy emphasis upon procreation. Heavy emphasis upon procreation, very little emphasis upon pleasure. So you can have you know, people that have been married for you know, 25 years, um, and, and in that context, sex is like there's no pleasure whatsoever. It's just a function. Um, but, you know, you have your kids, and that's, it's, but again, I would say within the context of the Bible, all three play together. All three come together in concert and create, you know, for lack of better terms, a symphony of beauty, all right? Symphony that's good, that, that brings joy. That being said, I would say one final thing about that. Um, there's a tendency to think of sex as being so pleasurable that uh, I, was ta- I was having coffee with a good friend of mine this past week, a guy named Jamie Pappas. He leads crew. And uh, he was talking about how in his uh, growing up, he was describing kind of what he said is like the, uh, the, the youth leader's promise, which is that if you trust God, follow God, and do everything that God wants you to do, that when you get married someday, sex will be amazing. The fact of the matter is, I hate to sell you a bill of goods, sex is good, but there are moments where sex is, I mean, if you make sex a god, if you make sex an idol, that at some point it will fail you. When it fails you, when you finally get in the context, you will either feel completely betrayed by your partner that didn't hold up their stick of the garden uh, bargain, or you'll get frustrated with God because you're like, God, I kept myself sexually pure. I waited till the right time to have sex, and now I had it, and it was kind of a letdown. That's because sex was elevated to a level of, of an idol, as opposed to being something that God intended to bring joy, not only to you, but also through you to, to your partner in the context of partnership or pleasure, as well as procreation. So there you go. So that's kind of recap. So in short, what we left off on last week, which will kind of lead us into what we're going to look at this morning, is this other question, which is what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? How come there's so much dysfunctionality? And I think the way the Bible would describe this, again, is sin. So again, like all words, like most words, a lot of words, you need to redefine them or at least go back to its original definition as to what they mean. Because I think words, especially like this word sin, is oftentimes, especially in today's modern day context, has been abused. Um, Rather than being a, a word that gives elucidation and light in terms of what God is calling something, um, it's become a club and, or become a sword in the hands of a lot of evangelicals that want to slay people that they dislike. 
So they say things like, you are a sinner, and you must repent, and it oftentimes comes across as cold and harsh and condescending and rude because it's exactly what it is. Is Rather than using a term that God gives to bring light and ultimately uh, bring about an awareness of one's heart that brings about life, um, it oftentimes is used as a means to take life, to condescend someone who is living and to bring destruction. And so sin has been one of those words that has been used and abused in a lot of those ways. So in short, sin just simply means, so we looked at again last week, that sin is a violation, it's a distortion, and or it's a rejection of God's design. So if you think of it, God is a designer, he's an artist, he's creative, he creates things, he created you, created your world, created all things, created sex. Sex didn't just come into the world, you know, by way of functionality. God actually designed it. In the same way, C.S. Lewis actually writes a lot about this and a lot of great things to think about. Um, the closest thing that he would liken it to is like food, eating. Like food, think about food. Think about food, how amazing food is. Um, not just food in general, but the fact that we have taste buds that can actually dance around and enjoy this incredible, flavorful, you know, rainbow-in-your-mouth experience, right? Um, that it's, it's a good thing. But C.S. Lewis also writes that if you abuse food, um, you, you eat too much food, um, it has negative consequences. In the same way, he describes sex as the same way. That these are, these are things that God designed for good to be utilized for a particular function. And when you abuse that function, or you take that function and redesign it according to a, a means and a way that, that is more suitable to you or is more satisfactory to a culture at large or is trying to kind of force it into or shoehorn it into a, a cultural uh, sex ethic that's different than the sex ethic of God, then what you have is uh, abuse. You have a violation. It's violating something by which the designer intended to be good, and it's ultimately distorting it, and at some point it will actually not only just be a rejection of God's design, but really rejection of God's design is also a rejection of God. The, the two kind of play together so it's not just so much God just saying, don't violate my, my stuff, what I say, but don't violate me. I, I love you. And this is where it's important to say that sometimes the way that we think about God's commands is we think about God's commands in light of some sort of distortion of the character of God himself. So we think about God, God gives us commands because God's aim in life is to somehow keep you from joy. So we think of God's commands as nothing more than another attempt by some sort of grumpy old entity slash deity way out there in the universe as a means to somehow keep you from whistling and being happy and enjoying life and celebrating that God is this cosmic killjoy. But in reality, God's aim at giving his, uh, his, his dictates, his word, his command, his law is really as an, an aim to line you up with the way that things We're intended to come together in rhythm, in symmetry, in harmony. And when you line up with the way that God intended for things to be, you find life. There's harmony. When you break them out of the purposes for which he designed them to be, there's disharmony, disunity. It's a different music that's playing in the background trying to subvert and overcome the music of God. You have nothing but chaos because you have a collision of different beats coming together and you have nothing but chaos. And that's, that's, what, that's what sin is. Sin is basically saying, I don't really like God's music, I want to create my own. But you can't dismiss God's music because it's always going to be playing. And so what happens, you create your own music in the context where God's music's already going. And you have nothing but disharmony. So sin, by definition, is 
uh, it's a violation, distortion, rejection of God's design. And it literally means to miss the mark. This is the way the New Testament word would be utilized. So now we're basically caught up to speed as to where we're at. I want to read a couple passages which will basically lead us into this morning. And then we'll make some comments and wrap this up. Hopefully allow some time to uh, ask some questions. So again, like we've done in the past few weeks, we've tried to create some time at the end to answer your questions. You can go to slidey.com. Uh, the code is the same as it was last week, and uh, we'll try to get to some of those questions at the end. So let me read a couple passages. The book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 19 to 20. Jesus has some really important things to say, and he has to say about the heart. Here's what he says. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And uh, in the context of the story, again, I'm not going to get too much in the context, but Jesus is basically uh, talking with uh, religious leaders. Religious people in Jesus' day, they were more concerned about externalities, you know, how one looked, how one dressed, how one act, whether or not someone actually washed their hands in a particular way before they ate their food. And, and uh, in the context, Jesus was basically breaking through a lot of that BS, is what it is, and just basically saying, no, this is not what makes you clean or unclean, whether or not you wash your hands or whether or not you adhere to certain ideologies or traditions, but really what defiles a person's heart is what comes out of your heart, or defiles a person's life is what comes out of your heart. Your heart, according to Hebraic understanding, we'll kind of look more at that in just a moment, is, is central to understanding everything we're about to talk about. So it, out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, and for the sake of our purposes here, the word sexual immorality is the word porneia. And again, uh, the word porneia is, is not the only thing that Jesus addresses. It will be the one thing that we will address today simply because that's the, the subject that we're going to be looking at. And I think one other final thing before I move on to state on this is why this is so important is uh, oftentimes evangelicals have been guilty of singling out certain sexual sins over a lot of other things. Um, and Jesus actually puts murder and theft, and false witness, you know, lying, not telling the truth, uh, slander. So, you know, you, you write something nasty about your friend, uh, and you send it around, and you create lies about somebody, um, you promote a non-truth. All of these are within the same playing field. They all come from the same source. They all come from a broken, ruined, dysfunctional, messed up heart that needs healing. Um, so Jesus is not uh, creating a hierarchy. You know, sexual sin, homosexuality is the worst Above all these things. Not at all. Evangelicals do that. But not Jesus. It's really important to note. But what he's saying is that they all come from the same source. And therefore the source needs to be considered and thought of through. Next slide. Is uh, Paul the Apostle picks up on a very similar concept. And what Paul actually goes on to say uh, with regard to the subject of porneia. And he says this. Put to death uh, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality. It's the, the first one that's on Paul's list. And again, it's not necessarily... A matter of hierarchy, though it could be, but uh, it, the, the idea is porneia, whatever that is. Again, like I said, it's this junk drawer term for lots of ideas uh, that have to do with some form of sexual dysfunctionality. Uh, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you, once, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, Next slide. Uh, he goes on to say, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices, and that you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, 
but Christ is all and in all. So he has a priority, he has an emphasis that Christ is and plays a very significant role to finding some help and healing in the long term for our lives with regard to the context of, again, all of these things that he states. Now, again, Paul, just like Jesus, doesn't necessarily create a priority. You know, sexual dysfunctionality is the worst of all. And again, like I said, I, I, I have to be critical of my own tribe, modern-day evangelicalism. They're my family, my brothers and sisters. I love them. I'm glad I'm one of them. But the reality is oftentimes modern-day evangelicals have oftentimes not done a great job at distinguishing different things. They oftentimes have isolated and marginalized certain sins or pet sins that they find particularly dis, uh, disdaining. They uh, isolate them and elevate them, and at the same time, they omit some of their own sins. So you can have somebody that is, on the one hand, super aggressive and angry and spiteful and condescending some, towards someone that has same-sex attraction, and yet they completely omit the fact that they have anger issues in their own heart or their covetousness, they have covetousness towards somebody else. And all of these things, Paul would say, they're all part of this category of the old life that God's given you the power now to put them to death, to move on, to walk in the newness of life that God calls us to. So, um, now what I want to do today is I want to try to give you guys some tools. Today's going to be very practical to just think about some ways to find uh, ability to put to death these very things that he describes. So I'll give them to you uh, out first, uh, and then we'll begin to unpack them one by one. So the first one I think that he describes is it's about, um, here's, a, here's a big word, vivification, vivify Christ. It's an old Puritan word, and I guarantee you no one used that word, vivification, this past week, um, unless you're a Puritan or read Puritans. Um, but it's an old Puritan word that basically just means to make much of and accentuate the beauty of Christ. So we'll talk about that and how that plays into giving you a, a tool how to fight for, within this context. The second thing we'll take a look at is the idea of mortification or mortifying the deeds of the flesh. And we'll look at that in just a moment. And then the final thing we'll take a look at is to live transparently within the context of community. So let's first of all take a look at the subject of vivifying or vivifying the beauty of Christ. So what does that mean? So again, Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 uh, which is the passage that we just read, says this, but Christ is all and in all. So there's something that the writer of, uh, that Paul the Apostle is writing to this community of people living in this uh, city called Colossae, that he wants them to emphasize, he wants them to recognize that there's something about our life that, ha- that, that focuses upon the beauty of Christ, the greatness of Christ, that Christ is all. He's not just some, he's not a part, he is all. There's something about Christ that Paul says, I want you to focus on. You know, let your heart be ravished by this reality. Let your heart be swept up, overwhelmed, overcome by the beauty and the greatness of Christ. Again, like I said, this is what the ancient Puritans would describe as vivification, vivifying, exemplifying the beauty of Christ. It's actively pursuing the things that will stir up your heart and your affection for Jesus. So again, think about that. What are those things? What are the things that accentuate the beauty of Christ? Um, Christ, our hearts are wired in such a way where if we grow bored of something, uh, we can't remain bored. We have to have something. So let me, let me read you a really interesting little passage out of a uh, little treatise by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote this uh, great um, sermon. You can actually download it via Google, free somewhere, just find it. It's actually called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. His argument is that 
Our hearts are wired in such a way where we long for certain things. And the way that we basically rewire our hearts is not to just keep saying no to those desires, but to replace those desires with something that's greater and more beautiful. Vivification. Not that you're simply saying no to these desires and saying, i got to stop that. i got to stop doing bad. It says, his whole argument is to say, you need to be ravished by the beauty and the greatness and the, and, the, and the amazingness of Christ. That will actually free your heart. Now, you can see this actually take place in the life of a child, right? So a little child might pick up something off the ground and start eating it. It's nasty. And mom's like, that's nasty. It's got all sorts of bacteria and virus and defilement on it, put that down. Now, if you try to take it away from the kid, the kid freaks out because that's what kids do. We do the same thing. But the way that you do this thing, you exchange it. You exchange it for something better. I'm going to give the kid a go-gurt or something like that. And the child gladly relinquishes whatever it's in its hands and grabs a hold of something that's actually better. That's the same process that he's describing here. Listen to how he describes this. He says, and I don't have this up on the screen, so just listen. He says, love may be regarded in two different conditions. The first is when its object is at a distance, and then it becomes love in a state of desire. The second is when an object is in possession, and then it becomes love in a state of indulgence. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that that it must have of something to lay hold of, and which, if wrestled away without substitution, something else greater taking its place, of another something in its place, he says, would leave a void as painful to the mind as hunger is to the body. Hear that? It's really powerful. He's basically saying love either takes place in one of two things. Either love in a state of desire or indulgence. Desire meaning there's something I really want, really bad. I think about it. I pray about it. I you know, fantasize about it but I don't have it yet, but I'm constantly thinking about it. Or love by way of indulgence, meaning you have it and you constantly keep going back and satisfying yourself. But if you were to strip yourself away from that thing, your heart would begin to ache, as he would describe as the same way as your body would ache for food. But he's saying, and he's going to go on to basically describe, the great thing that needs to happen is this exchange, where rather than just simply saying no to these desires, we say yes to something far greater. We say yes to the beauty of Jesus. Yes to the greatness and the power of God. That's what vivification is. It's saying yes to the glory and the beauty and the goodness of Christ. That radically transforms us. Now, listen to this as we kind of go on and begin to think about this a little bit further. Uh, John Calvin, the, uh, the great reformer, had written something really significant. Just listen to what he has to say. He says, uh, here we go. It says, error can never be eradicated from the heart until true knowledge of God be implanted in it. Just listen to that again. Error can never be uh, eradicated from the heart until true knowledge of God be implanted in it. So we've got to talk a little bit about the heart. The heart is a very important subject throughout Scripture. Um, The Bible emphasizes and focuses on the subject of the heart a lot. So if you ever take uh, this big, massive book, maybe you've heard of it, called the Concordance, and just look up the word heart, there, I don't even know how many entries there are. There are a lot. Let's just put it that way. I want to read you a couple of these because the heart, the idea of the heart in ancient Jewish literature and history is very significant. So if you're going to understand the Bible, you've got to understand something about the heart in the context of the Bible. And if anything, this actually might help you understand a little bit about yourself. You're welcome. You'll learn a little bit about who you are, how you operate, how you think, because the ancient Hebrew scriptures actually give us some information about that. 
So the heart, according to the ancient uh, literature, is really the seat of the inner self, the inner life. It's the seat of your appetites, your feelings, your inclinations, your orientation, your conscience, your heart. Your heart has capacity to basically guide and, and influence how you think, how you act, what you do. Again, this is why Jesus would say, out of the, out of the heart flow all of these things. If you have a heart that's broken, dysfunctional, disconnected with the very life source of God himself, then what will flow out of that heart will be something that is uh, connected to that. Brokenness, hurt, ruin. Um, so listen to what uh, the Bible describes. I'm going to read through a handful of passages that just talk about the heart. Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 23 says this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So whatever, whatever it is, it's so important that the scripture itself says, guard it. Guard it. Set, set a guard over your heart. So I don't know how you imagine that or think about that, but think about your heart, this inner workings of whatever is going on in here. It's so important, so significant, that out of this thing, whatever it is, again, it's not talking about necessarily your biological beating heart, but something that's even greater, something that drives you. It's so important that we're actually uh, admonished to guard this thing, because out of it, out of this heart flows everything that you are. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 says, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, the mind. So, so whatever the heart is, is distinct from the mind. It transcends the understanding and will, and will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. So th- again, whatever this is, that the New Testament writes that Christ will actually be the one that will be a guard over your heart. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 says, Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts. So whatever this, whatever this thing is about you, you have the capacity of hardening it. So whatever this is, it's super important. It can be disruptive. It can be ruined. It can be destroyed. It can actually be hardened. So whatever your heart is, and it actually says you have the, you have the capacity to harden it. It says do not harden. It's a command. Do not harden. So on the one hand, you have the capacity of softening your heart, opening it up, being malleable, supple, shapeable by the hand of God, or you have the capacity of actually hardening it and saying no. So here's, here's something to kind of push back on and just think about. A lot of times when people uh, hear about the gospel, hear about Jesus, they might say something like this. I, I just can't believe the Bible. I just cannot believe the gospel. I cannot believe in Jesus. I cannot believe in whatever. And really, if you if you gently push back and you pry and you're humble and you're kind, one of the things that you might oftentimes discover, it's not so much that they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. There's a big difference between can't and, and won't. One has to do with uh, completely uh, incapability of believing something. The other has to do with a willful determination that says, I, I refuse to imbibe this. I refuse to buy into this. I refuse to accept this. So the heart, it's so significant that it actually has the power to somehow harden itself before the hand of its creator. It's really powerful, profound thing about that. Next slide. Here's a couple ways to continue to shape our understanding about the heart. Proverbs 28, verse 14 says, Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. So again, a little bit of a distinction here. On the one hand, the heart could actually follow God and fear his ways, meaning we recognize that there is a voice above our voice. There is a power above our power. There is a creator above ourselves. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. And we are not the sum total of authority 
over our lives and over the universe. On, on, on one level, that's, that's extremely good news because that means that you don't have to control everything. It means that God is in control of everything. It actually gives, it's liberating truth. But on the other hand, that there is the possibility of actually hardening our heart and thus, as a proverb says, we, we fall into all forms of trouble. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 15 says that people's heart had become callous. That's another way of thinking about the heart becoming hardened because that's what a callous is. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is another way of thinking about humanity is that oftentimes within our culture, we hear people say things like this. Well, just follow your heart. What's your heart telling you to do? Do what your heart wants. The, the problem with that is, is our hearts actually are deceptive. Our hearts don't always speak the truth. Um, or the, our hearts all, don't always know what it really wants. I'll give you an example of this. So let's say, for example, if you were to go back to your three-year-old, you know, three years ago, to yourself three years ago, think about what were the desires you had three years ago. What were the passions, the longings, the urges that you had? What were the things that you wanted? What were the gadgets that you needed to have? And if you didn't have them, if you, if you, you know, you realize, I can't live without having the iPhone 5 or whatever it is, you know, or whatever, you know, if you're a droid, whatever, that's fine. But you know, still love you. You're still welcome here, even if you use droid. But the point of the matter is, uh, no matter whatever those desires are, think about who are the people that were in your life. You're like, I need to be in a relationship with this person. Or think about the job or the career path you, you were so convinced you had to have, and if you didn't get that job, your life would be miserable, you wouldn't measure up, you wouldn't stack up, you'd be a nobody. Now fast forward back again to your present day life and think about what were the things that you did get, what were the things that you didn't get? What were the things that you did get, and you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that chapter of my life is over because that relationship was trash. That person was horrible. They were abusive. And you wanted them so bad, you got them, and now you realize that that very thing worked its way into something that was really bad. So what happened there? How did you find that? Well, what happened was your heart longed for something that did not have the capacity or the, the ability to really discern the future. In other words, our hearts de deceive us. They lie to us all the time. Our hearts are always saying, Crave for that, long for that, pursue that, get that. You're entitled to that. And what ends up happening is at some point, we either end up getting it, and so we have a state of indulgence, the way Thomas Trumbull says, or we don't end up getting it. We're constantly living in this perennial state of, of longing. But here's my point. Our hearts don't, they're, they're, they're not a workable GPS system for your life. It's broken. It's broken. Because I'll tell you what, the, the five-year-old future self of you in the future is going to have a whole different set of capacities and desires and longings than today. So it's important to think about this, that our hearts do not, they're, they're not a, a reliable form of navigating our life. So with that being said, an alternative to think about this is that we're called to really vivify, to make much of Christ. That's one of the ways in which we are going to Set our hearts free by way of the gospel. And this is one of the reasons why I would say vivifying the beauty of Christ is going to be the one thing that will somehow capture and captivate your heart and give you something to feed on rather than a cheap counterfeit. Rather than something that's an alternative that really is never going to bring long-lasting hope and healing and wholeness and holiness. So the second thing I want to take a look at is the idea of mortifying the flesh. What does that mean? 
Well, the word mortify just simply means to put to death. And mortification means to just simply put to death. It's, again, it's an old Puritan word, old English word that just basically means that. John Owen, he's the uh, author of a book that's actually called The Mortification of Sin. Uh, he has this great statement. He says, uh, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin. Sin, the way he describes it, is a, is a terrorist. You, you, can't, you can't negotiate with it. You can't work with it. You can't somehow convince it otherwise. Sin has an aim. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. Sin's aim is to somehow bring about death in its host. Sin is like a cancer that, that you don't negotiate with cancer. You, you eradicate cancer or cancer will end up eradicating you. That's the way that sin has always been dealt with and thought through. So that being said, how do we mortify uh, sin? How do we put it to death? This is about actively engaging in putting to death those desires that oftentimes lead us astray, or at least somehow bringing about some level of control. Now, one thing that's really, first of all, essential, important to understand about this, that when Paul writes to those in this uh, particular church in Colossae, he's writing to followers of Jesus. That's really important to identify this. He's not just writing carte blanche to the entire world, because he's writing to people whose hearts and minds and lives have been awakened to, to Jesus. They see the beauty and the power and the life of Christ. And as a result of that, they've also been given the capacity, the power of God within them to somehow fight and to resist, to say no to the things that God says no to, to say yes to the things that God says yes to. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God, to live in which Jesus truly is the king of your heart. So when you think about this in this context, uh, there's something that is driving and controlling your heart. What, what is it? That's what we would describe as the king of your life. So for those that follow Jesus, uh, we try. We don't always do it well, meaning we will fail. We oftentimes fail. A Christian is one that says, I want Christ to be the king over all things. Uh, someone who's not a Christian is basically just saying, I, I live, I'm the master of my destiny. I choose my own you know, fate. I choose my own direction in life. And yet, we also know that that's, that's not necessarily true either because there's all sorts of other things that influence and shape the, the directions of our lives. Nobody is purely in control of themselves or of their life at all. But here's the point that I would make as we go back to this, as we kind of finish up. The concept of mortifying the flesh is an important thing. There's a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. He writes a, a, a message on the subject of mortifying the flesh. And he kind of gives three really practical ways to think about this. On the one hand, he says, here's some ways to think about this. Because Paul doesn't give like a three-point sermon on like, okay, guys, here's how to mortify the flesh. He just simply writes in a way, and he's got clues that are dropped into the passage for us to think about in the book of Colossians that we just read. And so what Sinclair does is he kind of brings and draws to the surface some of these ideas to think about and consider. First of all, he describes... Uh, the first thing that we can do is that we are to call sin what it really is. That we're to call sin what it really is. This, is. this is challenging in our culture because in a lot of ways, we don't like certain words that are Bible words because they're offensive to us. So we're like, ah, that's a little bit offensive. So in our modern day culture, I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, rather than calling a husband who has sex with another woman that's not his wife, we're like, oh, he had an affair. That sounds so much nicer and happier and friendly and exciting and exhilarating and joy-filled than he committed adultery. So we create different terms and terminology that sound less offensive, more domesticated, um, and yet what ends up happening at the end of the day is it's, it's still a cancer. It's still life 
taking. It's still destructive. And so one of the first things that Sinclair describes is for us to somehow go through this practice of just calling it what it is. We've got to start there. We've got to start there. Just simply say, okay, this thing that I have, I have a wrath issue. I have an anger issue. And the reason why I have an anger issue is because I want to be in control. I and mean, when I feel like I'm not in control, I get wrathful. Like those are things that we have to like recognize. It's a wrath issue that only Jesus and the, the remedy, the healing of that is recognize I'm not in control. Jesus is. The same can go for every other situation, whether it be greed or covetousness or sexual sin or pornea or some of these other things. Going back and recognizing the root of this thing is this and calling it what it is. The second thing he describes is to see sin for what it really does. To see sin for what it really does within the context of yourself and within the context of, of God. That it is something that's offensive. It's destructive not only to you, but also to the lives of other people, but it's also destructive in terms of the relationship with God. It's one of the reasons why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, he says that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. It's an important thing to at least understand. That we, at some point, we have a destiny that we will stand before God. Now, we don't like to think about that. We feel like that, that kind of like puts like the wah, wah, wah in our lives. Like, but the reality is if we own that, recognize that, we have a creator. Every single day, I'm breathing the very breath that he himself gave me. I didn't purchase it. I didn't own it. I don't deserve it. I'm not entitled to it. The very fact that I'm alive on this blue planet is because God has designed for me to be so. Everything I have in this life, the fact that I'm living in America in 2017 and not some sort of obscure place in Antarctica, because God designed for it to be so. Everything I have is a gift from God. And I will have to at some point stand before this God and give an account did I trust you? Did I love you? Did I honor you? Did I seek to obey you in my heart as painful as obedience to you might be? Or did I disobey you? Did I harden my heart to you because you didn't make sense? Your ways bristled against my sensibilities and therefore I said no to the things that you said yes to and I said yes to the things that you said no to. And at the end of the day, what he's saying is that we will one day stand before God. Now, again, this is radically countercultural. Because our culture today, we don't want to talk about things like judgment and wrath and sin and all these things. Because, again, we want, really for the most part, a Christianity that is not offensive. Now, there's a guy by the name of H. Richard Niebuhr. Some of you may have studied him or read him, but he's a pretty smart dude that lived in the uh, middle of the uh, 20th century. He had written a book called The Kingdom of God in America, and uh, he had actually written this in 1937. And so what was happening in America at that time within Christianity is that what was called the social gospel, and uh, at the beginning of the 1900s, um, there was a lot of modern scholarship that was coming on the scene, and it was kind of questioning a lot of the ancient um, ideas and concepts about Christianity. For example, miracles being, you know, case in point. It was a question of, like, did Jesus really rise again from the dead? Did Jesus really come forth from a mother that was a virgin? That seems so, like, mythical and ridiculous and like a story and like a wives' tale. So it could not be true. But what was happening within the landscape of Christianity, they were basically saying, well, how about, what are things that we can get rid of Christianity that sound nonsensical and ridiculous to this modern scientific age? And what are the things that we can hold on to? And so what was happening within the landscape of many mainstream modern uh, uh, Christian circles is they were basically cutting out things that seemed ridiculous. 
very similar to like what Thomas Jefferson did, if you're familiar with the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He literally like edited large portions of the Bible. I think, he, I think it's, where is it? Did he live like Monticello? Is that Monticello? Is that what it's called? Is that right? So I've I heard, I haven't seen it, that you can actually go there and see his Bible that he actually quote unquote edited. So he actually cut out all the passages that seemed like nonsensical and they were about uh, miracles. It was like, okay, I'll follow the teachings of Jesus, but everything that talks about a miracle, the resurrection, healing a blind person, that's ridiculous. We know that didn't happen, so let's just cut it out and like, like, let go of those wise tables. Wise tables. Uh, but the point is, is that within this context, as H. Richard Niebuhr was writing to the modern-day church at that time and saying what was happening was actually destroying the very gospel itself. So here's what he says to a church that was living within this modern, liberal, social gospel type community. He says this, that their message is about a God without wrath who brings men without sin, because nobody wants to be called a sinner. That's deeply offensive. Nobody wants to be called a sinner. Like, how dare you call someone a sinner? That's unfair. That's not nice. He says that they want a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And his point is that a Christ without a cross is a Christ without a resurrection. A Christ without a resurrection is a Christian without any hope. You can't start editing these things out. And the whole point is to go back to what does the scripture teach and to realize that sin at its core is a violation of the very creator God that created us. And gave his word to us. So that as we in obedience seek to live according to that. We will be lined up with the way that the creator designed for it to hum. To live in symmetry. To live in rhythm together. What the Bible would describe as shalom. Peace. To violate that. To harden our hearts to that. And say no to that. Is actually a way to remove ourselves from that harmony. Into a place of disharmony. The final thing he describes. Is that we're to remember our new identity. That a follower of Jesus is someone that has a brand new identity. You are not your sin. You are not your desires. You are not your inclinations. You are not your orientation. It may be a powerful emotion, overwhelming feeling, but it is not, according to the Bible, what identifies you. Our identity is a gift from God. That God calls us a son or daughter and gives us a new name cleanses us, washes us, gives us new hope. This is the great hope of following Jesus, that God gives us new life. And the last thing I want to finish with is not only to vivify Christ, to mortify the flesh, but finally, I want to look at the third one, is to live transparently within community. The fact of the matter is the Bible is filled with ways of describing. It's always, for the most part, written to a community of followers of Jesus. So every time, for the most part, with the exception of small books like Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and so on, most of the, the New Testament is actually written to a community of people. And the idea is to live out obedience collectively uh, as, as well as individually within the context of the community, which means we can't do this on our own. We need each other uh, whereby we can confess sin to one another, whereby we can confess our challenges and difficulties and hardships. And this is where, I, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, modern evangelicalism has gotten this wrong for many years. And here's, here's how, is that in some ways... The church has created a context that you are to come in and be perfect, or at least pretend as if you are. 
in any form of brokenness or dysfunctionality or ruin or messed up confusion, sexuality or whatever is oftentimes viewed with disdain. Like, you're, what do you mean? You're not perfect? How dare you not come into our community if you're not perfect? And it creates a context that's not safe for somebody to be broken. And the whole point of Christianity is to create a community of people who are broken. It's okay. We say this all the time. It's okay to not be okay. That's the context of the Christian community. But as we follow Jesus, the hope is that Christ will continue to bring healing and mending to our brokenness, to our confusion, to our sense of lost identity, to bring about wholeness about who God is. And as we do that, God transforms us and changes us to become people in his own image. I've said this before, that we have to be in doing this within community. So no matter who you are, no matter what types of circumstances you're going through, you need others around you that can help walk you through some of these challenges. Don't struggle or suffer through these things on your own. If you're not finding breakthrough in some areas that are actually bringing constant, ongoing, repeated, chronic brokenness in your life, maybe what you need more than anything is to confess those things to others that are maybe older in the faith than you, people that have been walking with Jesus a little bit longer, and ask them, hey, could you pray for me? Can you hold me accountable? Can you just keep you know, thinking about me and praying for me and whenever you think about me, just send me a note or send me a text and encourage me because we need that. The final thing I would say is I had some good conversations with my wife about this and to just to put a fine point to this, especially in the context that we we're talking about uh, sexuality and sexual identity and so on and so forth, that if there are any here in this room or in this church or people that you know that are within this context of this church that struggle with their sexual identity, that struggle with same-sex attraction. We want you to know this is a safe place to find wholeness and healing and holiness in Christ. To put a finer point to that, I want to just simply declare to you that one of the key things, and I'm going to show you some resources in just a second here. Um, One of the books I had read recently was a guy by, by a guy named Sam Elberry. And the question of the book is, is God anti-gay? And one of the things he points out in the book, he's a fantastic writer. He's actually a pastor in England. And he's a man that from his very youngest of days has had nothing but same-sex attractions. He's known a life of nothing else other than same-sex attractions. But Sam Elberry is, recognizes as a follower of Jesus, the most important thing for him is to live out obedience to Christ, which for him means to live in celibacy, to say no to those desires that will lead him away, that will take him away from the orientation or, the, or from the picture of how God has ordained for these things to be established. And so for him, for others that he talks to, he encourages to live a life of celibacy. But one of the things that he says that's challenging with that and that is to say no to sexual intimacy oftentimes can be also saying no to intimacy in general. And what he describes is that a human being can live without sexually uh, experience, but he cannot live without intimacy. And so what he says is it's so vital within the context of the church for the church to be a safe place for people that are going through challenges and difficulties and hardships and confusion that they can feel that there is a place that they can call home. So that being said, my wife and I have talked about this, and we, we want to throw this out and say that if there are any that in this church, in this community, that are part of this community, that have ever struggled, felt through that, we want to be a family for you. Talk to me. My family is your family. We will open it up to you so that you can become part of us, not so that that whole idea is just that you would be part of our family. 
to have Easter with us, to have dinner with us, to be part of our family, so that you feel not alone. That's what the gospel is all about. It provides a place whereby we can bring our brokenness, our dysfunctionality, our confusion, all of these things that are not in symmetry or harmony with the ways of God and bring them to the community of God's people and find wholeness in Jesus. That's what the church is. We're a bunch of sinners and saints trying to be transformed by the power of God to become fully devoted followers of Jesus who love God and love others. That's who we are as a community. So I'm done on this talk, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to go to some Q&A, and we'll finish with a song or two. Sound good? You guys cool with that? All right, you can take a deep breath now. It's over. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that you give us new hearts, new lives, new minds. So help us, God, to figure out ways to live in obedience to you, to the way that you've designed for things to flow and move. God, your ways are our way of life. So as we go through some of these questions, help us to understand more specifically According to these questions, ways that we can live out the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So hopefully you guys have uh, added some questions and or upvoted. So I noticed that in answering some of these things, my thing will kind of like update and I might get lost in some of this. So if, if I'm not getting to a question that you think that you saw in there, it might be because it's updating. So I'm going to do the best I can. So here we go. Would Calvary Slow allow someone in a gay marriage to take a leadership role at, at the church? For example, be on the board, lead a community group, teach children. So let me, let me first of all say that in Calvary Slow right now, we do have people that are same-sex attracted, that are missionaries, serve Jesus, but they are celibate. Or there are those others that are part of our church that are same-sex attracted and actually married to a heterosexual mate. And they're fighting a the good fight. Good friend of mine, can't say who he is, goes to our church. He's a male, obviously, hence by the heat. And uh, he's married to a gal. And he's known nothing but same-sex attraction his entire life. His entire life, still to this day, same-sex attracted. But he loves his wife. He sees his wife as a gift from Jesus and adores her, loves her. And they have a great marriage. He fights a good fight. He resists, says no to these desires because he knows that their desires that will not lead to life and lead away from Jesus. Um, and so I would say that if a person is living in repentance, the aim of Christianity is to be made into the likeness of Jesus, which means you're not going to be perfect. We will never be perfect. I've said this before, that uh, at the end of the day, Christianity is like being a Christian is, uh, is having new software uh, loaded onto your old hardware. <laughs> so we have these old bodies that have you know, mess up desires and they deceive us and they feel things that oftentimes are not in sync with our spirit. But the new desires that God places in our heart want to do right. That's why I would say there's a difference between your desires and your deepest desires. If your deepest desires is to say no to God, then I would question whether or not you really are a Christian. If your deepest desire is to say, God, I want to honor you, but my strongest desires want to disobey you, I'd say you're a Christian living in the midst of what all Christians have always lived through. Strongest desires versus deepest desires. Deepest desires are what God puts in us. It says we want to live in a way that's holy and loving 
and honoring to the heart and the mind of God. But some of my strongest desires might be overcoming me. So I would say in that context that uh, uh, we want to live out in obedience. And again, as hopefully has been clear within this, we don't see within the context of the church homosexual marriage as the way that God would see it, as the way that fulfills or completes or enhances the beauty of the gospel. And therefore, we would not see that as something that God says, that's my, my best. That's, that's what God would say, no. It's not a dishonor. It doesn't represent me. In the same way, I would say that we would not allow a heterosexual guy who you know, wants to be a pastor and having sex with someone that's not his wife. That's, that's, that, that is not consistent with the gospel. That is an actual aberration of the gospel. It's an inconsistency there. So, so to that person, we would say, no, the, get your life right with Christ. Um, live in repentance. Open up. Be aware be in transparent community, and, and as Jesus transforms and changes you, then, then maybe we'll see, see how God, I mean, leadership in the church is always a very, uh, it's a gift from God to the body of Christ. So that means that there are higher standards that God places on them to live according to certain moral uh, standards and ethics and ideas. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Um, but again, the key thing is repentance, living in repentance of acknowledging, recognizing the areas that maybe I'm out of line or out of sync and they need to be made right with God. There are men, people in my life that, that, that have total freedom to contradict me, to say things to me that are maybe out of sync or out of line. And my desire, as always, is to be repentant quickly in those areas to change. So hopefully that answers that question. Next one is, uh, okay, can you post it? Oh, good job. You guys are so good. There you go. Okay, I'm going to read these, so just in case you can't read them, and um, I'm actually going to probably work together, put together like a little like resource list of some things. Um, these are some books I would highly recommend, the first of which is uh, by a guy named Robert Gagnon. It's called The Bible and Homosexual Practice. He also, same-sex attracted man, that has, uh, is, is, is I, I'm not sure of his, you know, marital status or whatnot, but he's, a, he's brilliant, he's brilliant, he's a really gifted author and writer and speaker. I would highly recommend anything he writes. Um, the other one is Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's by John Piper. Some of you guys may have known him. And another guy named Wayne Grudem. Um, in fact, you can actually download that entire book free of charge. It's a massive PDF. Um, just do a search for it instead of buying it if you want. Uh, is God Any Gay? Again, Sam Elberry is, is a same-sex attracted man who's also a pastor who's living in covenantal fidelity to, to Jesus. Um, and he said, no, he's celibate, and he's, he recognizes that that's an important, and he's got some really important insights as to how to live this out and to live in obedience and honor to Christ through that. And then the other one is uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. I could, I could not recommend her book more highly. Um, she was uh, a tenured uh, professor, I think, of literature, or, I think, or English or something like that at Syracuse University. She was the main woman that was actually in charge of getting the gay and lesbian or the lesbian community actually going there in Syracuse University. She met Jesus, had a radical transformation. So today, she would say that she still has same-sex attractions, but she's, she's married to, to a man. And she's, she's, she's genius. She's really, really intellectual, really smart, but writes in a way that's very easy to understand. Uh, you can also YouTube her or you search her on YouTube. There's all sorts of sermons by her that you can uh, hear and listen. I post a lot of them on Facebook over the years. Okay. Uh, I'll go through uh, one or two more here. One of the questions that I, I wanted to uh, uh, look at here. How do we engage more in slow Calvary community when there are so few groups available, young marrieds, men's, and women's group? Great question. Start one. I'm serious. Start one. If you're here and you're like, there's not a group for me, start one. We will help you. 
Just talk to our church leaders. That's what they're there for. That's why they get a paycheck. It's to help you. It's to help equip you guys. Um, we realize there's all sorts of things that need to be done and ways in which we're trying to get things going. So we will help you. Um, the way that we typically work as a church is that if, if you have a need or you see something that's omitted or not being done, talk to us. We will help equip you. If you, if you don't feel like you're quite ready yet, um, we'll try to find other people by way of networking in our church and get you connected with them. But that's a great question. And again, going back to the importance of like community. So, so hopefully that answers that. Um, how do leaders in a church live transparently when their Christian culture demands leaders to be superhuman? Um, absolutely above reproach. It's a great question. Again, I would say that, that looks at the fact that there's a, there's a culture, a subculture, that, that demands Christians, Christian leaders to be perfect. Um, part of it, I think, plays into what I would describe as a, as a cancer in modern-day evangelicalism. Ready for it? It's celebrity status. That, that, to me, is a cancer. Churches that somehow take leaders and elevate them to some sort of demigod level, that they're you know, amazing, we go buy their book, we watch them, we observe them from a distance. So when they fall, and when they do fall, there's this overwhelming surge of like, you know, disenfranchisement and frustration. So I would say to cut it at the beginning level, just recognize, um, I, I think there's a give and take here. I think sometimes Christian leaders... Um, play along with the Christian uh, celebrityism because it always feels awesome to be amazing. I wouldn't know anything about that, but you get the idea. Like if, if you're like someone that's trying to like promote yourself, self-promotion. I mean, it's, that's like the Instagram world in which we live in today, self-promotion. Um, so there's that one side, but then there's the other side whereby people buy into it, and people follow, people like, people constantly play into this constant ongoing cycle. So I, I would say for you. Um, one way that you can help that is, is recognize for some people that actually may be a, a, a drug that the Christian celebrity is wanting. Don't, don't feed them drug. Don't be a supporter of that. Like, like lovingly pull back from some of that. So I, I, think, um, I think it's a problem. It's a big problem, but I'm, I don't know if there's like any simple solutions to that. Another one. Um, let's see here. Uh, again, this isn't updating, so I apologize if I'm not getting the one that you're thinking. Okay, so are all forms of birth control pills against God's design? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the reasons why Catholicism. Catholicism has been a major advocate for birth control for a very long time. Still, I think, to this day are, and that's part of the inner uh, turmoil within Catholicism today, is, uh, you know, to birth control or not birth control, you know. Um, and it kind of plays into what we described as the design for sex from God, that one of them is procreation. So they would look at it this way. I think they would take the, the, the design of procreation and elevate it above the rest, elevate it above um, 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 pleasure, and elevate it above even perhaps the partnership level. And to that level, that they would say that any tampering with uh, procreation is actually um, a rejection of God. So to take birth control, to have abortion, um, is actually disruptive of God's purposes. So I think, for the most part, um, most Protestant, um, non-Catholic followers of Jesus, they would say, yeah, procreation is important, therefore... But it's not all important. It's not an idol. It's not something that we elevate above and beyond all other things. So therefore, there are some you know, forms of, of you know, birth control you, you, can, you can practice. And I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that. So I, I would hopefully that answer that question. I'll answer one more. Okay, here we go. 
Do you think do you think God can take away homosexual attraction? Do you think God can take away homosexual attraction? Someone might have, or is that something they will always struggle with? That's a great question. Um, most people I know that have had same-sex attraction um, still have it, and and they they pray, God, please take it away, and it it doesn't it doesn't go away. Um, there are some I've met, like I said, that have actually lived in in uh, in healthy heterosexual marriages, partnership, relationships, um, while still fighting and resisting homosexual attractions um, and fighting that, resisting that, recognizing that's not a path that they see that's glorifying and honoring to God, so therefore they, they resist it. So, uh, look, I mean, again, let, let me liken this into a heterosexual context. Um, let's say you are a young man in, you know, 18 years old, late teens, and you're just constantly thinking about sex. And part of it is because of the culture you live in, and part of it's because you can't keep your hands off your computer. You keep downloading porn. So you keep feeding this beast. It keeps constantly coming back over and over again. And then your hope, your hope is like marriage. Marriage will heal me. Let me just say this. Marriage will not be your healing. Marriage, I'll say it again, different tone. <laughs> marriage will not heal you. Different tone. Marriage will not heal you. It cannot be your savior. Jesus is. Don't put your hopes that marriage will somehow eradicate heterosexual desires for multiple partners. It won't. Jesus will give you strength and grace to fight, to resist, to walk according to his plan. Sometimes that involves eradication, healing from those desires. Sometimes it's saying yes, it's the grace to say yes to God in spite of a very strong desire to do the opposite. Again, your deepest desire is to obey Jesus. Your strongest desire might be to have multiple sex partners. But say yes to Jesus is a path to life. To harden one's heart to say no to Jesus is a path to trouble, the way the proverb says. Your heart, guard it. The most important thing about you, guard it. Let God define it. Let God heal it if it needs healing. Let God fortify it as you move forward in this life to say yes to God. The kingdom of God is about saying yes to God. So, I'm going to finish. Um, one final thing I'll say is that uh, I'm hoping over the next several weeks to answer <laughs> every question you guys have submitted. And I, honestly, there's like dozens of them. So it's going to take me a little bit. Like from the past several weeks, probably three or four dozen questions you guys have submitted. So yes, it's like 45, 50 questions you guys have asked. So you guys have had great questions. Again, I'm only able to tackle a handful of them. Um, I'm going to finish. We're done. I'm going to have Nick. Is that cool, Nick? You guys cool have sing one more song? If it's late, you're more than welcome to leave. So as we kind of do this like little turnaround time, you can, you can slip out and no one's going to judge you. Um, well, I might, but um, no, no one else will judge you. Um, but why don't we all stand? We'll just finish with the song, and uh, we'll sing to God. And uh, my hope is to answer some of these questions. So go to the Calvary Slope page. I've created a private page um, for Calvary Slope people to go to, and then you guys can um, <coughs> request to be accepted within that, and then we'll get you in there. And uh, hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll begin to answer the questions you guys have. So... Um, you guys want to sing a song? Is cool? Well, let me pray. And again, while I pray, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you want to slip out 
in that like quietness. You can do that, it's all good. Oh, look at that, the lights are down, so it's all good. So no judgment, no criticism. Anyway, let me pray. God, thank you for your great love. And um, God, we're reminded of your love for us. Um, that's what the cross is. God, it's, it's you taking upon yourself great sacrifice to live out obedience for our good for our salvation. So God, I pray that you would help us to live out obedience by way of sacrifice, saying no to things that our hearts deeply long for and saying yes to things that maybe we bristle against, we question. But God, at the end of the day, I pray that you would help us to see that the kingdom of God is not simply about principles or ethics or morality. It's about a person, a Savior, one who loves us, So we sing and respond to you.